Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hey guys, Nate Hale here. Before we get started, I wanted to take a moment to thank each and every one of you for listening and for helping make this show a success. You may have noticed that this is episode 100, which is quite a milestone considering when I started I had no idea a few years ago whether this glimmer of an idea I had for a podcast would go anywhere. I thought long and hard about what I wanted to do to mark this momentous occasion. And along the way, I decided to go back and listen to my first few episodes over again. And, like a lot of podcasters who revisit their earliest episodes, I winced more than a little. The sound quality isn't there, the episodes are shorter than I'd like, and I think especially in my first episode I rushed through things more than I should have. Despite all my early technical challenges, I am so grateful you decided to stick it out with me through my growing pains and keep listening. I'm a better writer today than I was back then, and, at least I think, a better host as well. And it's all because I've worked hard to improve and bring you the best show I know how to do. With that being said, one thing I realized after listening to my first episode again was that I kind of rushed through a story that deserved to be told in full. I'm sure you're well aware that the movie industry really loves its remakes. Nostalgia can be a powerful force in getting people to return to theaters. Sometimes those movies are pretty terrible, but occasionally, something good comes from revisiting old material. So for my hundredth episode, I decided to take a page out of Hollywood's playbook and do a remake of my own. This is the story of a brave woman who lost her life under mysterious circumstances on a lonely road along the Oklahoma prairie. And now, on with the show. There isn't much to see along Highway 74. It's an indiscriminate stretch of road trailing north to south through the middle of Oklahoma. The land is mostly flat and arid. The once black tarmac has been baked gray under the relentless Oklahoma sun and covered by a thin layer of prairie dust. Occasionally, you might glimpse a stand of sad, withered pines or an oil derrick in the distance looking so much like the bones of the creatures whose remains they pump up out of the red clay. At around 7.30 p.m. on November 13, 1974, James Mullins was driving a one-ton flatbed welding truck north along Highway 74 between Oklahoma City and the tiny town of Crescent. Mullins' 14-year-old brother-in-law, Dalton Irvin, dozed in the flatbed cab next to him. Mullins had been driving this route every day for two weeks, and before that, he'd once worked as a record driver, so it was ingrained in him to keep his eyes peeled for signs of an accident alongside the road. He was about seven miles south of Crescent when his headlights caught a flash of a vehicle stuck in the ditch on the right side of the road. He'd been trailing behind his boss, John Trindle, who drove his pickup truck about a quarter mile ahead. Mullins flashed his headlights at Trindle and signaled that he was pulling over to the side of the road to get a better look. 
He backed up his rig just enough so that his high beams could illuminate the car in the ditch. He could clearly see now that it was a white Honda, trapped in the entrance of the concrete culvert. Mullins grabbed his flashlight, climbed out of his truck, and slid down into the ditch. When he got closer, he could see the left front of the vehicle was crushed, and sticking out of the open driver's window was a woman's arm. In the driver's seat was the body of a 28-year-old woman slumped over the steering wheel. Mullins' flashlight beam briefly shone on some papers strewn in the soft mud, and what appeared to be the woman's purse leaning against the concrete wing wall. The woman's name was Karen Silkwood, and while police would later report she had died in a one-car accident after falling asleep at the wheel, there are many others who believe she was murdered by powerful people who wanted to shut her up at any cost. I'm Nate Hale, reminding you that you're not paranoid if they really are out to get you. And this is The Conspirators. Karen Gay Silkwood was born in Longview, Texas in 1946. She was born and raised in oil country, in the petrochemical nexus of the Longhorn State, where the night sky burns bright orange from the fires of the oil refineries, like warnings of some impending doom. But there was nothing terribly foreboding about Karen Silkwood's early life. According to her family, Karen had a happy and normal childhood. She was never much of a rebel, but she did have a stubborn streak, and she liked to speak her mind. She was fiercely loyal to her family and close friends, and she'd defend them no matter what. Karen had a knack for sticking up for others, and for standing up for what she felt was right. She was not the sort of person to stand idly by when she knew something was wrong. It was a trait that would carry with her into adulthood, and one that many people believe may have cost Karen her life. That single-minded focus helped make her a straight-A student back in high school, as well as a member of the National Honor Society, and an honors graduate in 1964. She was especially good in science, with chemistry being her best subject. Back then, she was the only girl in the entire class. After graduating high school, she earned a scholarship that paid her way to attend Lamar University in Beaumont to study medical technology. That same year, Karen met an oil pipeline worker named Bill Meadows, and the couple began a quick courtship. Karen dropped out of college a year after meeting Bill, and the two of them moved in together, although they never married. Though Karen had once planned on pursuing a career in the medical field, she instead settled into domestic life with Bill being the breadwinner of the family. During their seven years together, the couple had three children— But Karen was never happy, and it seemed like their relationship was doomed from the start. Meadows drank heavily, raced motorcycles, and spent more money than he earned. Karen occasionally picked up part-time work here and there, but it was never enough to help make ends meet. Bill had expensive tastes, and eventually it would drive them into bankruptcy. In 1972, Karen found out Bill was seeing another woman. She demanded he stop seeing her, but Bill refused. 
Bill offered to let Karen walk away from their common-law marriage, but only on the condition that she give up the children. But Karen said no. Then one morning in August of that year, Bill woke up to discover that Karen was gone. Two days later, she called Bill from a friend's home in Oklahoma City, where she was staying, and told him she wasn't coming back. She said she had given up fighting and told Bill he could have it his way and keep the children. Bill went on to marry his new girlfriend not long after that. Although many articles following Karen Silkwood's death were quick to point out how she had coldly abandoned her children, those who knew Karen said that was far from the truth. Karen loved her children dearly, and it tore her up inside having to give them up. In 1972, Karen heard the Keir McGee Nuclear Corporation was hiring laboratory analysts at its Cimarron River facility near Crescent, Oklahoma. The job sounded like an opportunity for her to finally put her knack for science to good use. Karen began work in Keir McGee's metallography lab, where her job involved working with radioactive plutonium pellets to prepare them for generating electricity. Plutonium is a man-made element that was first produced in 1940 at the University of California, Berkeley, when it was discovered as a byproduct of bombarding uranium with neutrons. It would prove to be a key component in the United States' burgeoning nuclear arsenal. During the Manhattan Project, plutonium production was amped up dramatically and would be used in the bomb dropped on Nagasaki in 1945. Plutonium would continue to be one of the key ingredients in making nuclear weapons, but eventually scientists also began to explore how the element could be used in nuclear power plants as well. In 1951, the Keir McGee Corporation decided to branch out of the oil business where they'd made millions and enter into the lucrative nuclear energy business. Soon the company became ranked as the number one supplier of uranium in the country. By the early 1970s, they had begun to branch into the plutonium business as well. They established a multi-million dollar contract to produce plutonium fuel rods for the nuclear power plant in Hanford, Washington. At Cimarron, plutonium powder was formed into pellets, which were then loaded into fuel rods and welded shut. Karen Silkwood realized early on that she, like a lot of other employees, received very little training before being put to work handling the deadly radioactive materials. Despite a lack of training, Karen's job was mainly in quality control. Among her responsibilities was she was required to check fuel rods for poor welding, which might result in dangerous leaks. Plant managers often downplayed the risks involved in the job. Karen was told early on that surface contamination of plutonium particles was only slightly hazardous and could easily be washed off. They did stress that if plutonium got into the air and was then inhaled, that could be more serious. If such an event did occur, alarm bells would ring throughout the plant and everyone would have to put on protective masks. The one thing Keir McGee management failed to tell the employees, though, was that even tiny amounts of plutonium in the body could cause them to die of cancer. While working at the plant, Karen began dating a co-worker named Drew Stevens. Stevens was a member of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, and he encouraged Karen to join with him. Stevens had long been outspoken about what he saw as poor working conditions and lax safety at the plant. Workers were sometimes forced to work 12-hour shifts seven days a week to meet the company's contract requirements with a Hanford facility. 
Three months after joining the union, Kieran joined the picket line in a strike against the plant seeking better pay and working conditions. But after two months, the union lost and it was back to business as usual. But Karen wasn't discouraged. After that, her activism only increased. After only a year of work, Karen had become increasingly worried about the constant alarm bells that blared throughout the plant, signaling there was radioactive dust in the air. At one point, Karen complained to her managers that her air mask was too big to make a tight seal with her face, but her concerns were ignored. By the spring of 1974, Karen was becoming increasingly worried about her job. The 12-hour shifts, as well as her worries about the many safety violations she observed, began to take a toll on her. She went to her doctor and told him she was having trouble sleeping. The doctor prescribed quaaludes for her, which, back in the 70s, weren't yet known to be addictive. The pills helped calm her frayed nerves for a while, but the situation was growing increasingly tense around the Cimarron plant. The long hours were causing many of the exhausted workers to make dangerous mistakes. The alarm bells going off became even more frequent. In August of 1974, Karen was elected to the union's bargaining committee and she was put in charge of monitoring health and safety violations in the plant. Now, Karen McGee was forced to pay attention to her. Karen began interviewing her co-workers and taking notes about their complaints. But Karen's activities weren't universally welcomed around the plant. Many people around town began seeing her as a troublemaker who could potentially cost them their jobs. In September of 1974, Karen testified before the Atomic Energy Commission that she had discovered serious health and safety violations in the plant. She described a number of serious regulatory violations that included poor training, radioactive spills and leaks, and a general lack of knowledge among the workers about the hazards around them. In fact, it was during this trip that Karen finally began to get a clear understanding of the cancer risks involved in plutonium contamination. Karen realized that her managers had to have known the risks associated with the job, though they had chosen not to inform the employees who were coming into regular contact with plutonium. It was during this trip to Washington that Karen revealed that not only was Kier McGee downplaying the risks involved in plutonium production, but that they were also fabricating evidence to cover up mistakes. Karen explained to the union how part of her job involved inspecting welds on the fuel rods to ensure there weren't any leaks but someone had been coloring in potential leaks in the x-rays, then shipping the potentially faulty fuel rods out to the Hanford plant. Union officials were stunned. In a worst-case scenario, defective fuel rods could cause a nuclear meltdown, or even a nuclear explosion in the plant. The union executives knew they couldn't keep this information secret. They had to go public with it. But before they could do that, they needed proof. They enlisted Karen's aid to return to the plant and steal copies of the doctored quality control reports and any other evidence she could find. By the fall of 1974, Karen Silkwood had begun to collect numerous confidential files and other records of everything that was going wrong at the Cimarron facility. Although Karen thought what she'd been doing was secret, many people throughout the plant as well as those in management knew exactly what she was doing. At the same time, Karen's nerves were continuing to fray. She was losing weight, and she had begun taking the quaaludes she'd been prescribed for insomnia during the day. Then on November 5th, 1974, Karen's worst fears came true. That was the day she tested positive for plutonium-239 contamination. 
She had been working in a glove box in the metallography lab grinding and polishing plutonium pellets for use in fuel rods. At 6.30 p.m., she tested herself by waving her hands in front of the plutonium monitor next to the box. Alarm bells immediately went off, and the radiation tests that followed showed she had been contaminated with 40 times what was considered the safe limit for radiation. Even though the gloves were shown to have no leaks on them anywhere, plutonium was still found on the outside surfaces where Karen's skin came in direct contact. The radiation levels on Karen's skin were so high she had to go through a grueling shower of chlorine bleach and laundry detergent. Afterwards, Karen was sent home with a monitor and told she would have to bring back samples of urine and fecal matter for five days to determine how extensive the contamination was. The following day, she dropped off her first sample. Afterwards, she planned on heading to a union meeting, but before she left, she was tested for contamination only to discover her radiation levels were once again extremely high. The amount of plutonium particles embedded in Karen's skin was so great that even another bleach and detergent shower couldn't remove them. Karen was forced to endure her first scrub-down. This was something most of the workers dreaded, because there was so much plutonium embedded in her skin, they had to painfully scrub her skin raw in order to remove them. The following morning, Karen returned to work, where she was required to once again be tested for radiation. The news she received was very bad. Karen's radiation levels were even higher than the day before, which made no sense because, for the last couple days, she hadn't worked with plutonium at all. This would soon lead to another painful scrub-down in the plant's showers. Since Karen should not have come in contact with plutonium at work, this left only one terrifying explanation for this latest contamination. Karen must have been exposed to plutonium somewhere outside the plant. Tests were conducted of her locker and automobile to ensure no other locations she'd come in contact with were contaminated, but those tests came up negative. Things were quite a bit different when they went to test Karen's apartment, though. The hottest levels of radiation were found in the bathroom floor, the toilet seat, and inside her refrigerator. When asked how the radiation got into her apartment, Karen couldn't explain. She told authorities she had spilled and cleaned up a urine sample in her bathroom that morning, then later on touched a package of bologna in the refrigerator and carried it around her apartment before making a sandwich. Despite the massive radioactive contamination throughout her apartment, Karen's roommate Sherry Ellis only showed minor levels of radiation. Karen stood tearfully by as she watched men in protective gear clean out her apartment of her contaminated belongings. Everything in the apartment was removed and either packed into 55-gallon drums or hauled away for disposal in a landfill. Further tests of Karen herself showed that by now the plutonium had gotten into her lungs as well. Tests showed she had been contaminated with more than 400 times the safe limit of plutonium. Karen made several frantic phone calls that night to her boyfriend Drew Stevens, her union representative, and her parents repeating the same message over and over. Someone was trying to kill her. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Before we continue, I wanted to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Babbel a language learning app that will get you speaking a new language with confidence. I wish I'd had Babbel back when I was in high school learning Spanish. It would have made things so much easier. Babbel provides users with a choice of 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, German, and many more. Babbel is a fun and easy-to-use app designed to help you learn a new language in only a few weeks. Each convenient lesson is broken up into short, bite-sized chunks that only take around 10 to 15 minutes to go through. Each lesson was crafted by more than 100 language experts. You can use Babbel as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all devices. This is what has helped make Babbel the number one selling language learning app in the world. So if you're interested in learning a new language, guess what? You're in luck. Right now, listeners to The Conspirators can try Babbel for free. Download the app or text CONSPIRACY to 484848. Text CONSPIRACY to 484848 to try Babbel for free. That's C-O-N-S-P-I-R-A-C-Y to 484848. And now, back to the show. Now, if it was true that someone had deliberately contaminated Karen Silkwood with plutonium, you do have to stop and wonder why. If you believe Karen McGee's side of the story, then Karen had deliberately contaminated herself by rubbing plutonium on the bologna in her fridge in order to make them look bad. If someone really was out to get Karen, though, it didn't seem like they wanted her dead, at least not at that point. The amount of plutonium she'd been exposed to very possibly could have caused cancer, but that could take years to occur. That leaves a few other possibilities, though. One, that it was an attempt to scare her into quitting. Or perhaps whoever did it thought she would be so contaminated that the plant would fire her. A third possibility might be that by contaminating her apartment, this left Karen McGee employees free to enter her home and cart away any incriminating documents Karen had gathered. If that was the case, though, it didn't appear they got their hands on them. Not then, at least. On November 13, 1974, at just after 8 p.m., Karen Silkwood left a union meeting at the Hub Cafe just north of Oklahoma City clutching a thick manila folder full of the documents she had gathered. Witnesses who saw Karen at the meeting remember her having the folder with her when she left. Karen got into her white Honda hatchback and began driving the 30-mile drive to a Holiday Inn in Oklahoma City, where she planned on meeting her boyfriend Drew Stevens, her National Union representative Steve Wadka, and a reporter for the New York Times, David Burnham. It was time to blow the lid off the story and reveal to the world everything she had found. But Karen Silkwood never got there. 
A half hour later, the wreckage of Karen Silkwood's car was found in a ditch alongside the road less than 10 miles away from Crescent. Somehow, Karen's car had skidded off the road and into the embankment, killing her instantly. Less than 10 minutes after a truck driver discovered the wreck, two McGee managers who claimed to be just driving by pulled over and examined the wreckage, even before the highway patrol got there. When police finally did arrive on the scene, they discovered two marijuana joints in Karen's purse, along with one of the quaaludes she'd been taking regularly. The highway patrol used these details in their official report that stated Karen Silkwood likely fell asleep at the wheel while under the influence of drugs and crashed her car. After Karen's car was hauled away, officials from both the Atomic Energy Commission and Keir McGee had been allowed to examine the wreckage and go through Karen's belongings before her next of kin. This is significant because one thing that has never been accounted for among Karen Silkwood's personal effects is the folder full of incriminating documents she had with her that evening. The first highway patrol officer on the scene later admitting to having seen a number of official-looking papers printed on Keir McGee letterhead scattered around the scene of the crash. The officer said he picked these papers up and put everything inside the vehicle. Yet none of these documents were admitted into evidence, nor have turned up since. If the officer's story is true, then this means someone must have removed them at the garage where Karen's Honda was taken before her family got a look at her personal effects. The union didn't agree with the official story that Karen had been in a simple auto accident, so they hired their own accident investigation specialist, a man named A.O. Pipkin. He studied the scene of the accident as well as Karen's Honda, and he discovered dents and traces of rubber on the rear bumper of the car, which he believes may have indicated she was struck from behind by another vehicle. It's impossible to say for certain, though, whether those dents were already there before the night Karen Silkwood died or not. Karen's boyfriend, Drew Stevens, did claim that he had never noticed the dents before, though. According to some reports, laboratory tests of Karen Silkwood's body found a large number of quaaludes in her system. Although an independent medical examiner hired by the family claimed the pills hadn't yet dissolved in her stomach by the time the accident occurred. Other articles I found state that only one pill was found in Karen's stomach at the time of her death, and that had only been partially dissolved. Considering Karen Silkwood had been taking them regularly and that she had likely built up a tolerance, less than one tablet likely wouldn't have caused her to fall asleep at the wheel. Karen Silkwood was buried by her family four days after her death. Because all her belongings had already been seized by Kier McGee's hazardous materials team, her family had to buy her a new dress for her funeral. Karen's family steadfastly refused to believe the official story and were convinced she had been murdered. They hired a private investigator named Bill Taylor to look into the case. He spent months studying the case files as well as the crash scene and he came to the conclusion that Karen had been wide awake when she crashed. Based on the official police and medical reports, Taylor determined that Karen had both her hands on the steering wheel when she was forced off the road and into the embankment, driving both hands into the wheel and bending it upwards. Based on the force needed to do so, as well as the position of her body when it was found, Taylor concluded Karen had been awake and trying to evade another vehicle when she crashed. Despite being presented with evidence to the contrary, the Oklahoma Highway Patrol stuck to their conclusion that Karen had fallen asleep at the wheel. 
Author Richard Rashke, who wrote the book The Killing of Karen Silkwood, doesn't believe whoever ran her off the road intended to kill her. This would stand to reason since an auto accident is never a sure way to commit murder. It's always possible the person somehow survives the crash. Rashke believes whoever was chasing Karen down meant to scare her and meant to get back that Manila folder full of documents at any cost. The union took all the information gathered by the private investigators to the FBI, hoping to reopen the investigation. But the FBI told the union they didn't believe there was any evidence of murder, and that Karen had died in a one-car accident just as the official report stated. But that wasn't the end of Karen's story. In early 1975, just three months after Karen Silkwood's death, the Atomic Energy Commission released three damning reports on Kira McGee. One of these reports confirmed many of the accusations made by Karen and the Union, including the poor working conditions and lack of safety measures at the Cimarron plant. The other two reports confirmed that Kira McGee did violate some nuclear safety regulations and that it appeared Karen Silkwood had been contaminated by persons unknown outside the plant. In fact, the report noted that Karen's urine samples had been spiked with insoluble plutonium particles, which would have been impossible to pass through her system. This meant someone had to have dumped the powder into the samples after the fact. Furthermore, the AEC determined the plutonium found throughout Karen Silkwood's apartment had come from restricted areas of the Cimarron plant that Karen herself would not have had access to. The Cimarron plant was shut down in 1975 after their contract wasn't renewed. An official report explained that the plutonium fuel rods they produced were of poor quality, although the Hanford nuclear power plant continued to use many of those fuel rods for years after. Karen Silkwood's story would eventually gain traction and become national news. Many newspapers, magazines, and TV shows went on to detail Karen's story in depth. In 1983, a major motion picture titled Silkwood starring Meryl Streep went on to win five Academy Awards. In 1976, Karen Silkwood's family filed a lawsuit against Kier McGee on behalf of her estate. The suit charged the company with willful negligence, allowing her to become contaminated with plutonium. The company's attorneys tried to paint Karen as a promiscuous drug user who was out to slander the company's good name. The case dragged on until 1979 when Karen's family finally had their day in court. During the trial, Karen's attorneys laid out a damning case explaining the dangerous working conditions at the plant. They presented evidence that a Kier McGee employee was marking up x-rays with a felt-tip pen, although the company claimed he was only doing so to cover up dust particles on the x-rays, not defects. Kier McGee's lawyers made a then-contradictory claim that Karen must have stolen the plutonium found in her home herself but at the same time they claimed that security was still airtight at the plant. They were later forced to concede that at least 40 pounds of weapons-grade plutonium went missing from the plant and could not be accounted for. This was enough plutonium to make three nuclear bombs. This news terrified the jury. Also, while the trial was still going on, another major story occurred when a near meltdown occurred at the Three Mile Island nuclear plant in Pennsylvania. The jury awarded the family more than $10 million in damages. The company appealed the verdict and eventually settled out of court for $1.8 million. In 2006, the Anadarko Petroleum Company purchased Kier McGee, effectively ending the company forever. 
A journalist from Nashville named Jackie Saruji believes Karen Silkwood may have stumbled across evidence of a nuclear smuggling ring at the plant. She enlisted the aid of a good friend of hers named Larry Olson, an FBI veteran who worked as the Bureau's liaison to Keir McGee. At first, Olson began looking deeper into the case under the assumption that Karen Silkwood had been smuggling plutonium out of the plant herself to make money. Some reports stated as much as 60 pounds of plutonium had gone missing from the plant, which on the black market could have been worth as much as 5 to $10 million. There were even some reports that said as much as double that amount of plutonium may have gone missing. It was only after Olson dug further that he began to revise his theory about a smuggling ring. If Karen Silkwood was involved in smuggling, it was only as a minor pawn. This ring he came to believe had to be much bigger and well-connected. Olson began receiving word from the highest levels in Washington, D.C. that he needed to drop the case and forget about the missing plutonium because he was stepping into matters of national security. Further inquiries into the missing plutonium, including a congressional investigation by Congressman John Dingell, were also shut down before they could be completed. One theory that's been put forth is that there really was a smuggling ring at the Keir McGee facility, but that it was government-sanctioned and that the CIA was actually in charge of the operation and were sending the plutonium to Israel for them to build up their nuclear arsenal. To this day, Israel continues to play coy about having nuclear weapons, although it's widely believed that they do. It's impossible to know for certain if there was some vast government cover-up going on, although the suspicious deaths didn't end with Karen Silkwood. While researching his book on Karen Silkwood, author Richard Rashke was contacted by the daughter of a man named Thomas Bunting. Bunting was a former Air Force intelligence officer who became an agent in the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations. He was the supervisor of the OSBI's Criminal Conspiracies Unit back in 1974. And he undoubtedly would have known confidential information concerning the case. While the Silkwood family attorneys were gearing up for their lawsuit, they planned on issuing a subpoena to Bunting for him to testify in court. According to Bunting's daughter, her father at first steadfastly refused to testify, citing matters of national security as his reason. Bunting's daughter said that his father eventually had a change of heart, though, and agreed to testify. But before he ever got the chance, he died of a massive heart attack. This despite having a recent physical which showed no signs of a heart condition. He was only 44 years old at the time, and considered in good health. This was thought to be so unusual that several members of Bunting's family, including his first wife, demanded an autopsy. But Bunting's second wife, Sue, refused to allow an autopsy to occur. Not long before Bunting died, he had revised his will to make Sue the sole beneficiary of his insurance and police death benefits. She too was found dead several months after her husband's death. Her body was found in her car, in the garage with the motor running. Her blood alcohol level was extremely high, and her death was ruled a suicide. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks so much for sticking with the show to my 100th episode. I do this show because I love bringing these stories to you, and I couldn't do it without you. This week I have several new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Kat, Marinda, Raylin, and Michael. You're all amazing. Patrons to the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts and our bonus mini-episodes. 
If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll post a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts. If you're not on Apple, you can also find us on Stitcher, Google Play, or many of your favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Feel free to drop us a line on Twitter, our Facebook page, or by emailing us at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join me again next time.